All right, guys, how you doing today? Uh, welcome to Roost Chris Bible Study. It's good to see everyone out here. Here, I'm, you may notice this is not Roost Chris. We're here at Disciple Dojo because I taught the lesson today. We had a great turnout. I had a full dining room. Taught on the first part of Exodus, or excuse me, of Numbers chapter 20. It was awesome. I'm a big dum-dum, and I forgot to hit record after getting the camera and the microphone set up. So, this is for the benefit of those who weren't there today, who missed the anointed teaching. Now, it, actually, it was a lot of fun. It was a good session, and I was kicking myself that I forgot to record it. So, this is a podcast, though, and I don't want the people missing who keep up with us each week. So, we're going to look at what we looked at today at the study, and that's Numbers chapter 20, the first part of it. Um, what we talked about was... So the previous chapters in Numbers, starting around chapter, maybe around 12 or so, is when this cycle of rebellion started. And the rebellion snowballed throughout Numbers. And over the previous chapters, there's been like rebellion and judgment, um, grumbling, complaining. And we saw that finally a whole generation of Israel lost out on the blessing. The entire reason for them being taken out of Egypt to begin with was to enter into God's promised land as His covenant people. It didn't happen. And so what we have now are the last remnants, the last vestiges of this group who've been taken out of Egypt and brought into the Holy Land. So the very last generation, uh, the, the, the end of it. Now everything, <clears throat> chapter 20 begins, well, chapter 19 was the last of the, the preparation or the living before the 40 years of the wilderness. So between chapters 19 and 20, there's about 38 years pass, completely undocumented, undiscussed. You know, Numbers doesn't really talk about the wandering in the wilderness that Israel did. It's all between chapters 19 and chapters 20. You know, you move one line and boom. 38, almost 40 years have passed. So what we have in chapter 20 <clears throat> is coming to the end of that first generation who came out of the wilderness, I mean, excuse me, who came out of Egypt and who came into, who will go into Egypt. This one generation is going to die off and then the other is going to experience, the up and coming generation is going to experience the salvation that God's promises bring. So, if you hear a scratching noise, by the way, this is my dog, Ripkin. He finds it very funny that I'm recording a video right now, and he wants me to play with his toy. <laughs> Rip, let me do the podcast. You don't even know what a podcast is, do you? No clue. <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> Numbers, chapter 20. It says, In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Sin, and they stayed at Kadesh, and there Miriam died and was buried. Now, this lets us know a few things. One is, back in Exodus 17, when Israel came out of Egypt, they came to this place, the wilderness of sin, and, and there was the place that they came to was Kadesh. And Kadesh is a form of the word that just means holiness. But this, it's, it's like they're, this generation now, they're back. They're back where they were. And the tail end, this is where uh, they came out, of Egypt and came to, but on their way to Mount Sinai, they came to this place and called Kadesh and, and there was this place and they didn't have any water. And so they kind of grumbled about it 
And what God did was he brought water out of the rock. And he had Moses take Moses' staff, the one that he had done all the, will, the uh, wonders in Egypt with. And he had Moses strike the rock. And then water came out of that, and it was enough for the whole people. And if you missed the video on that, go back on Disciple Dojo, either the podcast or the YouTube video, and check out chapter 17 of Exodus for that event. Because now this is almost like they're getting a chance to redo it in the eyes of the new generation that are coming up, that are, that are almost ready to take over for this old generation. And so it's, it's kind of like they're getting a do-over, so to speak. When they come to Kadesh again, they come to this place where they ask for water again. It's, it's like they're getting another chance. Uh, so all that's kind of in the big picture of what's going on. And, and it's so similar that some scholars say that Exodus 17 and Numbers chapter 20 are both retellings of an event that happened at some point, and the, the redactors have worked them together into two separate events. And we can ferret out the sources. One is the JE source, and one is the P source. And Again, we've talked about that before. I, that is, in, in spite of just being, or rather than just being speculative, it completely overlooks the fact of what God's doing through having this thing happen twice. So where some critical scholars would see a doublet, theological readers can look and say, or what's much more likely is that God is, there's a, this is happening again. There's a reason for it happening again. So, it depends on what lenses you read Scripture through. If you read them through skeptical lenses that are always looking for contradictory sources, then you'll come up with all kinds of stuff. But if you read the text as it stands and, and believe that it is a text with authorial integrity, then you start to see other reasons, for rather than a clumsy redactor, for what's going on in this chapter. So, we get to this first verse, and Miriam's dies, and she was buried. And this is huge because Miriam kind of gets a bad rap. The last time we've heard of Miriam, she was... Uh, complaining about Moses's, you know, dark-skinned wife, and so God did an ironic punishment with her and says, "All right, you want white skin? Here you go." And so there's this whole incident where she has this skin infection that turns her white, and Moses cries out. He prays for uh, to be healed and, and intercedes, and she is healed. And Miriam has Miriam has gotten a, kind of the raw deal with that being the last thing that we really hear from her because prior to that, Miriam was pretty awesome. I mean, she was the one who rescued Moses. She was the one who um, made sure that the woman who nursed Moses would be his mother before he was taken, uh, weaned and taken off to live as a prince of Egypt. She, she is an integral part of his life. I mean, his entire life. And he's about 120-something, give or take, around this time. So this is the person he's been around forever. I mean, other than his 40-year stint when he was fled Egypt after he killed the Egyptian and lived in the wilderness and got married and that, he's, I mean, Miriam is a key, other than that, she's a key person in his life uh, besides Aaron. So it, this is a really, this, this chapter starts on a sad note. It's going to end on a sad note as well, but she dies and she's buried. So Miriam, one of the first leaders of that generation, is, is, uh, dies off before she can see the promised land. And so after noting that, and, and Moses probably, you know, mourning her in a state of mourning. This is, this is a time where he's probably at his lowest emotionally. And after 40 years of leading these people nowhere in the wilderness, Moses has probably had it. You know, he's, he's probably done with this by now. And so then we read in chapter 20, verse 2, it says, Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. 
they contended with. Some NIV says quarrel, but the word is, is more of contend. It's like the word you'd use for bringing a lawsuit or just for opposing someone. So it's not just like quarrel, like, you know, like there's more going on there. That's the noise for quarreling, by the way. Um, they contended with Moses and they said, if only we died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. So this is their complaint. Now at this point, this is 40 years. Moses has put up with this for 40 years. And it's almost like as the reader, we're supposed to immediately be on the side of Moses and against the people thinking, again, after the previous, you know, six chapters, seven, eight chapters of this, now you're complaining again. Don't you remember what happened last time a group of you assembled against God's leadership and complained? Don't you remember the fire that fell or the plague that struck? That's what we're expected to read as, or hear as readers. That's kind of what you'd expect right now. And they, um, Moses and Aaron's response, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. When the glory of the Lord shows up, somebody's going to get fried. Somebody's going to get plague stricken. Uh, bad things are going to happen when God's glory descends in the midst of argument against God's leaders. Everything in the narrative is getting us to expect that this is the end of this generation. They've finally done it. They've, they've reached the last straw and God's going to completely wipe them out because the new generation, it's been 40 years, the new generation is ready to take the land and ready to move. And, and all we're waiting for is this old generation to die out. That's what should be going on in our minds, having read this. So God's response, and Moses' response is not as surprising as God's response. In this, uh, it says, verse 8, God, or verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron, Gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Now, take the staff. Well, Moses' staff that he hit the rock with last time and it made water? No. What's the last staff that we've read about in Numbers? In just the previous two chapters, Aaron's staff. The staff that budded, the staff that was to be kept in the Holy of Holies, like the most sacred object, right? The thing, remember, think back to what's in the actual tabernacle, inside the Holy of Holies. What's in there? The Ark of the Covenant. What's in the Ark of the Covenant? A jar of manna, the tablets that the law was actually written on, the covenant copies, and the staff, the one that, blown, excuse me, that blossomed with uh, almond branches or almond buds, almond flowers, that, that symbolized, because of the wordplay with the word almond, that symbolized God watching Israel, God seeing what's going to happen. And also it symbolized the authority that God had invested in Aaron and Moses to lead the people, the priestly authority, the authority to stand between the living and the dead, to stand between the sinfulness of the world and the holiness of God. That's the authority that was communicated through this staff. So this wasn't the shepherd's staff, the walking stick. This was, this was the scepter. This was the identifying mark of God's very presence watching among his people. That's the staff. And God says, take that staff. 
because remember, this has set my identity. This has this staff is is what has uh, how I proved the last time there was a rebellion. How I proved who the authority was and who would speak in my name. Who would stand before me and represent the people? Who would be a priest? So this staff has incredible religious significance, theological significance. It's it's loaded with holiness. It's, it's, and we've seen holiness is like this fire that burns, you know, so this is like God saying, hey, go into the core of the reactor, pull out one of the uh, fission rods and take it out with you among the people. Like this is a, could be a dangerous thing. That's how the holiness of God is, is so overpowering in this story. So Moses is to take that staff and it says, speak to the rock before their eyes, in front of their eyes, in their presence, speak to this rock and I'm going to bring out water. There's going to be word, and word is going to lead to water. Word is going to bring life in the desert. This is what God wants. This isn't like last time. Back when they were a, a new generation who had just come out of Egypt, and God had to show himself holy in their eyes, they've been through all of that. So now Moses is just going to speak, and the water is going to come from the rock. That's the plan. So verse 9, Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with the staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. This is bad. Moses was told to speak to the rock. Instead, he speaks to the people. He calls them a group of rebels. Whereas God just said, provide for their needs. See, Moses, he's, as a shepherd, he's been with this group. I'm sure they've gotten on his last nerve. They have been a generation who have been rebellious. But God's already judged their rebellion. God doesn't add judgment this time. God is going to show grace this time. God's prepared to show grace to undeserving people. And that's what makes grace, grace. Grace is not merit. Merit is when you show favor to somebody that's earned it. Grace is when you show favor that's not deserved, that's not earned. And that's what God wanted to do in this instance. That's what he ultimately did. He met the needs of the people. But Moses used this opportunity, whether it was out of frustration, whether it was out of anger, whether it was out of righteous indignation in his own eyes, he did something that you just don't do. He took the authority of God and used it as a means to vent his own frustration or his own anger. He, uh, in seminary, they used to, a preaching professor used to always say, don't beat the sheep. Don't beat the sheep. What he meant by that was, they're not your sheep. The people you're leading are not your people. They're God's people. So don't hammer them constantly. Show grace when it's needed. Every pastor, every pastor at some point has wanted to lay into his congregation. If you go to a church and you have a pastor, at some point that pastor has wanted to yell at you all for something, whether deserved or undeserved, whether right or wrong. Every pastor that's listening to this knows exactly that feeling when you get so frustrated with the congregation for whatever reason that you just want to open up the barrels of God's word, aim them at the congregation, and just pull the trigger. I mean, just blast them with prophetic words. And, and a lot of pastors do that. They'll use their pulpit as a bully pulpit. That's where that term comes from. They'll use the pulpit because the, in a pulpit, who's going to talk back to you? 
You're above the congregation. You're in a place of authority. So you can say what you want, and unfortunately, some pastors do. And Moses, in this moment, this is what he does. He uses God's authority to vent his own anger or his own frustration at the people when God had not authorized that frustration. God wasn't wanting to show anger. God was wanting to show to this new generation who's watching this old generation the kind of God he is. And Moses then misspeaks. He misrepresents God before the people. His only job is to represent God to the people. He's to be the mouthpiece. And instead, he uses God's authority, but he uses it for his own frustration, his own venting of anger. And so the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I've given them. Moses and Aaron both. Aaron, he's already uh, played with fire once with the golden calf incident and didn't get punished for it because of Moses' intercession. But now, because Aaron doesn't intercede, when Moses misspeaks, Aaron's right there with him as the priest. It's his rod that Moses is using to do this. He stands there and lets it happen. And that, along with all of the other things that Aaron has been a part of in that generation, disqualify him from taking the people into the land. In fact, he's going to die at the end of this chapter. We won't get to it this week because we don't have time. But this is, this is the end for Aaron. And for Moses, this passage has troubled people, readers, forever. I mean, it's such a depressing passage. It's such a somber passage. It's such a severe passage. Like, God, Moses was faithful to you for 120 years. And then he just loses his temper once and he can't inherit the entire purpose of why you called him. And this has led to a lot of speculation among readers and scholars and interpreters over the years. Uh, commentaries are filled with different views and different reasons. I'm there on the shelf, literally right behind me. There's all kinds of reasons people have suggested. Ancient Jewish commentators, Christian readers, they've, they, because we've read this and we just, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. This whole chapter is unfair. The rebel, the people quarreling for water, they were the ones who should have gotten judged. But yet, Moses is the one who gets judged. And, and God wants to show grace to the people, but then He shows severe, severe judgment on Moses. And so we're, we're troubled by this. One of the things that pretty much every interpreter acknowledges is that this chapter is intentionally laconic, as they would say. That's just a fancy way of saying it leaves out a lot of stuff. And there's tradition among Jewish interpreters that it leaves out specifically the sin of Moses. Like what exactly was, did Moses do that was called being unfaithful to me or misrepresenting me before the people? What exactly was it? The hitting the rock? Was it the yelling at the people? What was it? The passage doesn't tell us. And it's probably intentionally. It, it preserves the exact crime that Moses committed because, or excuse me, it, it doesn't preserve the exact crime Moses committed in part because perhaps it doesn't want people to elevate whatever Moses did, that thing, as this sin above all other sins. Because God's judgment on sin is a judgment on sin in different contexts with different people and he shows mercy and he shows grace and sometimes he's severe. And so it, possibly that's why the chapter's short. One of the other reasons I would offer is this chapter puts the emphasis on 
the whole situation and how Moses responds in general. So it's not just one particular thing like, oh, you did this one thing wrong, so that's it. It was the whole, everything from his attitude, his heart, his, uh, his actions. The biggest thing in this chapter, I believe, is him taking the staff and using that and, and hitting. You just get this image, if I were directing this in a movie, um, you know, you'd get the image of Moses just yelling at the people as he strikes the rock, or you want me to bring you water now? You know, like, you know, it's just this anger. He just blows up at the people. Um, all of it contributes. What it shows us, what this passage shows us more than anything, is that the higher the level of responsibility that God invests in his leaders, the higher the level of accountability and punishment they need to be ready to to experience. This is no doubt this passage, among others, was on James's mind when he says in his letter in the New Testament, not all of you should be teachers because those of you who teach will be judged by stricter standards. And I think that this is absolutely one of the main examples of that. Moses talked to God face to face, mouth to mouth, as the Hebrew says. He was, he was God's spokesperson. And so in this act of uh, what started out, he tells the people, you rebels, but he's the one that actually is rebelling against God. When, you, you, when we, teachers, preachers, pastors, when we misrepresent God to people, that's a grounds for fear and trembling. That's when we should really be nervous. When we dare to speak a word to people and say, thus says the Lord, this is what God's telling you. When we invoke the identity of God, when we invoke the office that He's entrusted us to, which in this case was the priesthood, the, the tabernacle, uh, when we claim God's authority, we better be sure that what we're saying is what God actually says and not changing, filling in the blanks, speaking with authority that God has not given us, there's pastoral a call, a huge call, a huge warning in this to pastors. Because what is Moses? He's the pastor par excellence. He's the shepherd. I mean, up until Jesus comes along, he's pretty much the example of the good shepherd. He's the one leading the people. He, I mean, he was literally a shepherd in Midian when he got called. So this is a severe warning to pastors. When you speak, whether in the pulpit, whether on your social media, your tweets that you send out in frustration, um, there's heaviness in the words when you dare to speak in the name of God. It's not a flippant thing. That's why, oh man, when I see these preachers, whether on TV or online or in these big, you know, elaborate ministries, when they dare to use Scripture in order to justify their own greed, it blows my mind. I just I wonder, have you not read Exodus or Numbers chapter 20? Have you not, when you, when you demand that people, poor people, send you money as acts of faith to God, have you not read Numbers 20? Now the thing in here, God took care of the people. The water flowed. You know, so people, when, when you know, somebody poor sends money to a shady televangelist, I'm not worried about the poor person who sends the money because I feel like God, God will handle there. God will handle them. He's got their back. I'm worried about that shady preacher 
and all the people that look to him as a source or her as a source of authority. Numbers chapter 20, this first half of the chapter, and we've we, we got to wrap it up now, but this first half of the chapter should cause fear and trembling, especially among clergy. One other note in the text that you may have missed that sometimes gets lost in translation, it says uh, Moses, Moses, after he said, listen, you rebels, verse 11, then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Not like raised his hand to hit with the staff. Raised his hand and then struck the rock. When's the last time we read about sin done with a raised hand? We've, this, is a new, this is not a new thing. God has said throughout, all the way back to Exodus, some sin can be forgiven through sacrifices, can be atoned for. Other sins, the sacrifice blood doesn't cover. What type of sins? Specifically says, sins committed with a raised hand. The Bible, some translations call it high-handed sin. And what it means is sin that's done or, or a deed that's done with full awareness of that deed. Moses raising his hand, he was defiant. Now, whether he was defying God, maybe not. More likely he was, he was invoking to raise your hand is what you do when you swear an oath. And to say sin committed with uplifted hand was a way of saying sin that was done with the seriousness of an oath. So whatever was the case here, Moses raising his hand was invoking, along with the staff of Aaron, that he had gotten from the presence of the Lord, along with doing it in front of the eyes of all the people, he's invoking a solemn, vow-like honesty or seriousness in this thing that he does, which is disobedient to God. So... Is the punishment for Moses too severe? From our perspective, we think, well, I've done worse. But from God's perspective, this is something that's much more serious than we take it. And I think that might speak to how lightly we take sin in our own lives. Um, I think it might have more to do with that. But this is one of those key moments in the history of God's people when all of Israel is looking and God is about to show grace to an undeserving dying off remnant of rebels. And it's at that point that Moses actually takes over for God and does his own thing. And that's not what God wanted. And, and the consequences are Moses disqualified himself from being able to take the people into the land. And so it's a very sad chapter, uh, first half of the chapter at least. And it's only going to get more sad because Aaron, again, is at the end of this chapter, he'll die. But We'll pick that up next week. Next week we'll be back at Ruth's Chris and I'll remember to hit record so you won't be watching my big talking head right here in my study. But um, keep that in mind. That this chapter, it's supposed to be an uncomfortable chapter. It's supposed to be a chapter filled that makes us ask questions. It should raise questions. We shouldn't try, oh, well, the reason Moses was excluded was blah, blah, blah. No, like it should leave us with a sense of, really, God, after all this, that's the attitude that the text gives us, and it's what we should end with. So that's it. Uh, we'll see you next week. I would say there's seconds. Grab some more. That's what I normally say at this time, but I have nothing. So, uh, I'm here at my house, and my refrigerator is quite empty right now. So you're just going to have to deal with that. Feast on the Word. That's all I can give you. See you next week, guys. Take care.